Hi everyone! Left to our own devices, the conference may be over, but you can still watch the recording at cybellum.com conference. Tune in to listen to FDA updates from FDA executives themselves, learn about AI in automotive from NVIDIA, the AI leader, and listen to product security leaders from Philips, Honeywell, CISA, and more. Go to cybellum.com conference and watch the recording for free. See you at the next event! You're listening to Left to Our Own Devices, the podcast dedicated to everything product security. Let's get going. So our guest today is uh, Steve Springett, also known as uh, Mr. Cyclone DX. Steve has many years of cybersecurity experience uh, and he's educating teams around the world on the strategy for developing secure software. He's the chair of the Cyclone DX core working group, a fundamental role in the development of S-bombs and securing devices. Uh, and when it comes to, it, uh, to his day job, uh, Steve is currently senior manager product security at ServiceNow. So we're thrilled to, to have him with us today. Steve, welcome to the show. And I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into cybersecurity in the first place. Yeah, I've been involved with, uh, you know, I've been a software engineer for you know, well over two decades. And in around 2008 or so, I got involved with doing some supply chain work in, for the pharmaceutical industry. The states of California and, and Florida here in the United States, they were experimenting with some protocols at the time to really talk about pedigree and provenance of, of what was in their supply chain. So that's how I kind of got into a lot of the supply chain work. But I didn't actually go into security as a full-time role until about 2012 or so. So I've been doing this, um, you know, well more than a decade. And, uh, you know, my work in 2012 and 2013 with OWASP kind of led me down to more supply chain things. So I've been uh, kind of doing that pretty much all along, uh, whether it's software building materials or you know, other things in the software supply chain. I've been uh, pretty much focusing on that area. But yeah, in my, in my day job, I work with a few thousand developers. Uh, we do threat modeling and all kinds of really fun activities, trying to get them to design and, and, and build, deliver secure and resilient software. So that's really interesting. Um, so you're very involved in Cyclone DX. Where do you see Cyclone DX uh, evolving to in the next three years? Yeah, that's great. So, you know, there's there's a lot of things that Cyclone DX can represent in terms of inventory today, right? The world is talking about SBOM. However, software hasn't lived in a vacuum for two decades, right? It calls out to services and all these other things. And then, of course, we have serverless applications as well. So Cyclone DX can currently represent all the software hardware, and services that make up a thing, whether that thing is a microservice, whether that thing is an IoT toaster, or that thing is a guidance system on an F35, right? Cyclone DX can actually represent that, that full stack inventory. But there's other things that, that it can't do. Um, so mm -hmm. low-code application platforms, machine learning, uh, training data, and that sort of thing. So I think we have some growth areas to do um, so that we can describe more and more things with the with the standard. So I see that becoming um, an eventual maturity thing within the spec. I also see Cyclone DX being more used 
for a lot more complex vulnerability management purposes. Cyclone DX is, is a bill of material standard, but it's also a VEX standard, vulnerability exploitability uh, exchange for, for those uh, that may not know. It's a way to, to describe what is not wrong with the components in, your, in a given application. And there's a lot more when, when you support services and, and some of these other things, you also have to support unknown vulnerabilities, which means that we're going to be aligning more along the lines of offensive engagement platforms so that we'll be able to you know, capture a lot of the, the, the payloads and, and that kind of information on how to reproduce some of the vulnerabilities that you, know, you, you might find against services. So we're going to be really focusing in on a lot of the vulnerability, more the advanced vulnerability management use cases. And I think there's just a, you know, in general, I think over the next three years, you're going to see a lot more maturity for the types of solutions that are available in the market and a gradual improvement of the spec to facilitate the advancement of, of more complex, more, you know, bleeding edge type of use cases. I talk with vendors pretty much all the time about some of their advanced use cases, whether it's API security or or some of these other more real-time things that might apply to SOX and and other kind of security uh, use cases. And I think Cyclone DX has has kind of a natural fit with a lot of these things. So Again, you know, over the next three years, you know, expanding the types of components that we can support, expanding some of the more advanced vulnerability management use cases that we support, and just a, an overall refinement of the spec is, is, is kind of where I see it going. Interesting. Maybe just uh, on that note, are there other standards that you would see today in the market, let's say, as competition potentially for Cyclone DX? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, so SPDX uh, is a great uh, standard coming from the Linux Foundation. Uh, historically, they've been focused on license and intellectual property use cases. Uh, more recently, with uh, some of the NTI efforts, they've been kind of uh, veering their way into the bill of materials space. It wasn't necessarily designed for that purpose, but it, it can be used for that purpose. The SPDX group is is working on version three of the spec, to my knowledge, which actually will position SPDX as, as being a, an actual bill of material standard at that point. So that, that's certainly some competition um, in the bill of material space. However, I think with Cyclone, you know, again, you get that full stack uh, perspective, not just the software, but the services and the hardware that goes along with it. And then, of course, it's also that VEX format as well. So, you know, the Cyclone DX VEX format, uh, even if you are using SPDX, you can use Cyclone DX Vex to describe what is the vulnerabilities uh, present in that SPDX uh, SBOM or the, um, the things that may not necessarily be problems, um, vulnerabilities uh, in the inventory of that SPDX SBOM. So it's, um, it still has a, a really big role to play. In the Vex space, um, Cyclone DX actually competes with uh, CSAF which is a really great standard. It comes out of the OASIS uh, group, and it's a, um, it stands for the Common Security Advisory Framework, I think it is. And it's, uh, it's a way to describe advisories, which is great. VEX, if you look at Vulnerability Exploitability Exchange, is kind of like the anti-advisory, right? It's mostly telling you what are the things that you 
don't have to worry about in the context of a vulnerability, vulnerable components in, the, in a given application. Um, so advisories and VEX kind of um, go hand in hand. So it makes sense that CSAF actually supports that. But the interesting thing about advisories, VEX, and SBOMs is that they all kind of work really, really well together if each one of these things is actually designed for the others in mind. Now, CSAF and, and VEX, they're, they're kind of designed for the SBOM use case, not necessarily tying it back, however, to SBOMs. So with Cyclone DX, you actually get all three kind of working together to one, simplify your tool chain, two, reduce costs. And, you know, it's just an overall better uh, experience from a, uh, from a developer's point of view. So I think we still have a lot of value to play there. So in the SBOM space, yes, we compete against SPDX. In the VEX space, we actually compete against uh, CSAF. Very interesting. So as a follow-up to this, in general, what do you think is the future of standards in, in this field of, of product security? There are a lot of different things that, that are going on in this, in this area. What do you think product security teams should prepare themselves for with regards to standards in general? You know, security teams have been focused on, on really hyper-automation, right? We have a talent shortage in security. This is nothing new. It's been happening for the past decade. It's just really, really hard to find talented people uh, to come in and, um, and hit the ground running, so to speak. And because of that talent shortage, we have to automate at really, really high velocities uh, just for survival purposes, right? So when you're looking at standards, look at not just if it can be automated, because pretty much every standard can be automated, but can you automate this thing at the type of scale that you need it to, right? Um, so that's, that's something to look at. The other thing to look at is not just looking at the current requirements that you might have. For example, if the short-term thing that you're looking at is maybe compliance to the uh, U.S. Executive Order 14028, for example, you just need to provide some SBOMs. Well, you can choose either one of these standards to do that, right? They're both more than capable of doing that. However, if you actually want to describe the full stack inventory of stuff, including the services, maybe you are creating IoT toasters for whatever reason. Um, you know, you have to kind of look at, at some of these other use cases that go beyond just the minimum for the executive order, for example. So, you know, once you start integrating a SBOM standard into your build pipeline, you want to make sure that standard is, is very future um, focused so that you can grow with it and start adopting more and more capabilities of that spec over time. That's great. Thank you for that. So with all the standards and with uh, some of these standards actually being included in, uh, you know, in the regulatory documents or uh, compliance requirements, um, we seem to be putting a lot of paperwork on the table for the regulators. And I know one of the things that uh, that we've discussed in the past in, in a couple of the groups that we're in together is really who's going to be looking at those, who's going to be taking those and, you know, those, the SBOMs, the, you know, the Cyclone DX standard, who's actually going to be able to regulate this and comply and to be able to enforce those regulations, you know, also from, I guess, a knowledge point of view and also from a scaling point of view. Yeah, there's been a lot of discussion, you know, historically about 
you know, the basic use cases, right? We NTI had a bunch of working groups and they were talking about the use cases and talking about the standards and formats. There, you know, there was a little bit of discussion about distribution and, but not a whole lot of discussion on how you would actually operationalize this stuff, which, you know, I think is kind of unfortunate. The interesting thing is that OWASP has been doing this for a fairly long time, actually. The data model that actually Cyclone DX, um, you know, has came out of a lot of the research that uh, OWASP had done starting back in 2012, 2013. And as of today, the Cyclone DX spec is cataloging on a monthly basis uh, over 200 million components. And that is being analyzed on a monthly basis, again, up to 20 billion times for components with known vulnerabilities. So we know this can be operationalized at massive scale. Now, those numbers are fairly big. The interesting part, however, is that that's just data from one source of vulnerability intelligence using one tool. There's obviously multiple sources of vulnerability intelligence and multiple tools that support Cyclone DX. So that 200 million number is actually much, much larger than that. As an open source standard, uh, we, we don't have a lot of visibility into the actual use case of it, but it can be operationalized at a really massive scale. Now, how do you actually provide governance and regulatory frameworks on top of that? Um, that's a really interesting question. I don't have an answer to, but you know, one of the things that I look at with, uh, with SBOM is, yes, it's nice to have. Yes, you can analyze them for known vulnerabilities and a bunch of other things. But SBOM by themselves, I think it's not possible to operationalize these things without a corresponding VEX. You actually need the VEX to tell you as a software consumer, you actually need that to tell you what's important and what's not. You know, if, if I'm given a, 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 an SBOM with, you know, 100 components in it, right, and 20 of them have known vulnerabilities, are all 20 exploitable in the context of the application? Probably not. You know, statistics say that upwards of 90% of vulnerable components are not actually exploitable in the context of given application. So that means I, I in actuality, I only have a, a few that as a software consumer that I should actually care about. And since we're all talking about SBOMs for vulnerability management purposes, having that corresponding VEX along with that SBOM, I think is critically important in order to operationalize uh, the, this, this entire thing. Very interesting. In order to know or to be able to reduce down the number of um, vulnerabilities to a, an, a handful that you could actually do something with. Yeah, absolutely. If, if you know, in, in, in that example, if I, if I did have 20 vulnerable components and maybe only two are actually exploitable, as a software consumer, I'd like to know that because I don't want to waste my time mitigating 18 things that really may not matter. Um, I, I should be able to concentrate on the two that do while I'm waiting for that vendor to provide a patch or provide me some kind of workaround, whatever the case is. As a software consumer, 
I want to at least know what things I should care about so I can maybe put some mitigating controls in, in there myself uh, while I'm waiting for the vendors to, uh, to, to patch and, and release new versions of their software that may not be vulnerable. Right, right. That, that makes a lot of sense. We, we saw that transition in the traditional IT vulnerability management world, right? It also started off with tools that bombarded you with the alerts and vulnerabilities. And then through time, you managed to prioritize them better and better. And that was what it's all about. So I'm curious about your view. Uh, I'm taking a step back here. Uh, your general view about security. We know that one of the biggest challenges these days for uh, product security teams is actually creating a process that spans the entire development life cycle, right? From design all the way through post-production. So in your mind, since you have so so much experience in that field, what is the key to, to building such a process? Try to remove as many silos as, as possible. You know, we have a lot of the technology to do all this, I mean, from beginning to end. So beginning from requirements to, you know, design reviews and threat modeling to, you know, running all the security tools all the way to testing, you know, software and deploying it and, and monitoring it. We have all this stuff in mass. You can pick and choose commercial and open source solutions that, that do a lot of these things. In my experience, that the number one um, inhibitor for a lot of the progress that I see is man-made, right? It's, it's human problems. Uh, it's silos within organizations that may not necessarily be as uh, efficient as they, as they can be. Uh, I know within my day job, for example, we try to uh, remove as many of those silos um, in our you know, SDLC process as, as humanly possible because they get in the way. You know? So if you measure teams on the right things, if you reward individuals for the right things, you can get the kind of behavior out of that organization that, that you want. Um, and I think that's critically important. The, the technology, that's the easy part. The human part, that's, that's a little harder. Great. Thank you. So I have a question for you that we like to ask our guests on this show. And it, it relates to, and it can be related to something you were shocked about or something that really just amazed you. Uh, what is the most amazing or unbelievable moment that you had in the world of cybersecurity? Oh, there are so many of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you typically gravitate toward events like Log4J or, you know, some of these big supply chain things. You know, my, you know, everything is inherently broken. We have uh, RFCs that are vulnerable by design. We have, uh, you know, programming languages that make it really, really easy for developers to shoot themselves in the foot. We have frameworks that are, you know, that that uh, that focus on getting developers uh, up and productive, rather than securely productive, right? We try to get the development experience as 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 streamlined as possible, knowing that kind of everything around them is inherently broken, and yet we um, we expect miracles from our development teams. And, and for them not to, to create vulnerable software. Well, everything they have is vulnerable. Their IDEs are vulnerable. Their stacks are vulnerable. Their RFCs are vulnerable. Everything is inherently broken. And um, what amazes me on a regular basis is the fact that we're only hearing about this maybe a few times a year. 
right? I'm, I'm actually surprised that we're not hearing about this, you know, these major type of incidents on a more weekly basis, right? Or, 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 or more, just because of the nature of the problem, which begs the question, because uh, we, we know everything is inherently broken, um, which begs the question, uh, what aren't we hearing about, right? That's, that's what kind of keeps me up at night, right? And it's the, the nation state adversaries. It's, it's these kind of the, these more advanced type threats that, um, that kind of keep me up at night as a security practitioner. It's, it's the things that we're not hearing about in the news that, that kind of worry me, knowing that everything around us is inherently flawed. Right. Interesting. Well, that's a big one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that really so, is. <laughs> I, I don't know how I'm going to sleep tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Just you, know, you, you wake That's up every morning and, and, and you try to make the world just a little bit better than 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 you uh, than you woke up with with it in. So that's that's kind of the the thing that kind of keeps me motivated to you know keep on pushing on is is just trying to make a difference. Whether it's you know the work that I'm doing in the OWASP community with Cyclone DX, uh, whether it's in my day job and you know I work with four thousand plus developers trying to get them to build and, you know, deliver uh, resilient software. So it's trying to have an impact on, on the developers who are actually creating a lot of this stuff. Because again, they're, they're, they're kind of given a, um, a, a, a bad hand and we, we kind of have to, to make the most of it. So the more security practitioners, we kind of uh, get into the fold and, and we're really working and partnering with development teams, the bigger impact we're, we're actually going to make. In my opinion, anyway. Amen to that. <laughs> so to to finish on a, on a more practical note, do you have any specific practical tips for product and device security teams for uh, 2022? Know what you're shipping, right? I mean, it, it sounds, um, you know, it sounds elementary, but uh, knowing what components that you actually ship with is is really important. It's, it's one of the reasons why S-bombs uh, and bill of materials just in general are, you know, um, uh, becoming more mainstream, at least in the software world. Um, know what you're shipping. Uh, that way you, as a possible supplier or vendor, can know if your downstream users are going to be impacted by something. Um, if you're a consumer, um, start adopting this stuff. There's a lot of open source tools. There's a lot of commercial tools on the, on the market. Let's support all of these these new type things. Um, are they are all of them perfect today? No, this is a fairly new industry. But uh, your early adoption and feedback to these projects and to these vendors is really going to help us kind of advance the field. Um, and I would say get involved, whether it's you know with the OWASP Foundation, whether it's OpenSSF, uh, get involved in some of these you know larger security communities. Uh, you'll find that. There are some really, really good security practitioners in some of these different organizations that uh, that have a wealth of knowledge that can kind of help you. So if you've kind of been on the sidelines and kind of viewing security as just uh, a, another thing you have to have, I would encourage folks to kind of get more actively involved. There's there's a lot that um, there's a lot to learn, and I think there's a lot of there's a lot that other organizations that might have been more passive can kind of contribute to the conversation going forward. And we need more of that, quite frankly. Yeah, I agree. Well, Steve, you know, I think we could keep on talking for another hour, but uh, 
I have to say it's really been a pleasure uh, having you on the show. I think I'm speaking on behalf of the entire product security community when I say that you're doing work which is you know, taking security forward um, and really, really helping to make products and devices more secure, and also to raise the mind, you know, the mind share of what needs to be done. You know, make sure you know what you're shipping, make sure you know what you're using, and what's inside the devices that you're using. Um, I think you know, at, at every stage of the game, uh, you, you are really helping to make sure that the end consumers are safe, the practitioners using whether it's medical devices, whether it's uh, people driving cars or any kind of other industrial device, I think this is something that um, is going to take a lot of work in the next few years. And we really thank you for being here on the show and we thank you for the work that you're doing. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate it. And thanks for having me on your show. Appreciate it. Left to Our Own Devices is brought to you by Cybellum. To learn more, visit cybellum.com.